Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 3. Part 1, Chapters 3, 4, and 5. The Goddess, the Healer, and the Accursed. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I am joined by Matt, too hot to handle, too cold to hold, Bush. Well done, David. I look forward to these every week now. <laughs> and how many more of these do you have in the bag that you're just waiting to pull out of your arrow holder and shoot at me? No, I, it's mainly from the hip. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, fantastic. Well, this is going to be a fun week, by the way, because if you can't tell, I am drinking tea because I am nursing a cold right now. And so this is actually great because I get the chance to sound more of a deep, raspy voice. <laughs> Having a manly voice, it is good. Uh, I am actually also drinking tea since I also have a bit of a cold. So I'm having lemon and ginger. What are you drinking? Actually, I'm drinking uh, turmeric ginger. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and then I've got LaCroix as well. LaCroix. Come on, Matthew, don't forget all the work we did last season. <laughs> it's already been a race, David. Okay, so what's the quote of the week? This one is from the book, as usual. It was then that I fully perceived how much older she had grown since her sickness, for she neither accepted the rebuke like a child, nor defended herself like a child, but looked at me with a grave quietness, almost as if she were older than I. It gave me a pang at the heart. So this is Orwell speaking about, or right after she had an experience with Psyche. And Psyche had gone through a sickness and come through the sickness and definitely had grown older. And because I've mentioned before, and I will continuously throughout this, so much this book is about false self, true self, and your growth as a person. This is a great example of a moment when Psyche became older, wiser, mature, more her true self. And we're going to probably talk a little bit about that in this chapter. Okay, then. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. Ah, that is good tea. I've always loved tea. But it's just going through the roof now that I've been sick because I've had about eight glasses a day. <laughs> uh, since it, we've just had Thanksgiving and Black Friday and Cyber Monday, I've actually bought a new super duper kettle for the office because I just need to raise the standard of tea drinking here. Well done. I love it, which I'm glad you reminded me. I have to purchase all of my Cyber Monday stuff after this recording. It's 8.30 on Cyber Monday today. And so that means I'll, I'll probably, when we're done with this, have two hours to pull the trigger on the items that I've scouted out. This week, I read Leaf by Niggle by J.R.R. Tolkien. Have you ever read it? No, I've never even heard of it. And it says by Niggle. What's Niggle? Is that his nickname? Niggle is the name of the character. Oh. It's basically Tolkien's version of The Great Divorce. Really? Yeah, he described it as his purgatorial story. Really good. Those of you who are out there who listened to us in season two when we we're going through the Great Divorce, do yourself a favor, pick it up. It's super short uh, and let us know what you think. Is it similar where it follows characters or no? It's just one character. Okay. It's just a short story. Well, I have an exciting announcement too. I'm going to, I think I've already built this up too much, but <laughs> I was just listening. <laughs> I was just listening to Bishop Barron's podcast, his Word on Fire show. And they were discussing his recent trip to England and Oxford, particularly in the grave of C.S. Lewis. And they made just a simple comment where him and Brandon Vaught are both talking about Lewis and just said, C.S. Lewis, both of our heroes. 
So I just loved hearing Bishop Barron refer to C.S. Lewis as his hero because he's just a deep intellectual human being. And sometimes people who know C.S. Lewis give him the respect of the deep intellectual he was. But sometimes I think people think of him as a Narnia fiction writer and don't realize that incredible depth that he had in Pope JP II, um, St. John Paul II, uh, read 18 of Lewis's books and loved Lewis. And so he's just, he's everywhere. Benedict too. Yes. So that just made me happy. Well, this week we've got three chapters to get through. So I'm going to suggest let's, uh, let's hit the ground running. A.K. Matt, stop talking. <laughs> and A.K. Matt, don't introduce any of the themes of the chapter beforehand. Just let David jump to the summary. Yes. So this is a summary <laughs> for chapter three. Redival is discovered with a soldier named Tarin. The king has him castrated and sold into slavery. He orders Redival to remain within sight of her sisters and their tutor, and this makes everyone miserable. The people begin to treat Psyche like a goddess, and Redival uses this information to blackmail Oriel and the fox. The fortunes of Gloam decline. There are poor harvests, and the king fails to remarry. Taran's father leads a rebellion which is ruthlessly crushed. A plague strikes the city and many fall sick, including Ungit's priest and the fox. Psyche nurses the fox in his sickness, and upon his recovery, rumors spread about her miraculous ability to heal. A mob arrives at the palace demanding Psyche, so she comes out to touch them as they kneel in adoration. She contracts the sickness, but recovers. Redival then begins to regularly visit Ungit's temple. Well done, David. Thank you. There was a lot that happened in this chapter. It was kind of hard to get it down to 150 words. Yeah, I could imagine. So Redival is discovered with a boy. <laughs> and the punishment for that was castration and being sent into slavery, which seems a little extreme. Brutal. But it does show Redival's priorities. And if I've got to say something for this set of chapters that we're going to be discussing today, it's all about where are your priorities and particularly the kind of love that you're looking for. So Redival is desperate for a husband. And so that goes above everything, even her royal duty. And in this case, she fi finds this Eros love in the arms of a young officer. I actually never thought of that. That was a great... That is a great way to describe this chapter. It's where do you put your loves? We're going to see how where Orwell is starting to put her love. We're going to see where the king obviously puts his love. We see where Redival does, and we see where Psyche does, and Psyche being the proper way. I never even thought of it that way. Well done, David. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one other thought I had, because <laughs> it's like, Lewis, did you really need to tell us that he was castrated? Uh, but I was thinking, if Ungit is basically Aphrodite, Venus, she's a goddess of fertility. So you actually have the reverse of that happening here, where uh, a, a man uh, is, is made barren. Yeah, I don't think that was a coincidence. Lewis is too smart for that to be. I think very little in this book is a coincidence. Isn't that what Andrew Lazo had said? You read it and you realize a bunch just happened, but it's, a lot of it's over your head because probably every sentence is so important in this book. In this particular episode, the king is as lovely as always. He threatens the fox and says that, if my daughter loses her virginity before marriage, it's going to be on your head. Uh, he refers to Redival as, a, as, as an animal in heat. And he saves his usual venom for Oriole. He refers to her as goblin daughter. And he says, if a face like yours can't frighten men away, it's a wonder. This is just another example of how he's wounding Orwell. 
And I want, I want us to constantly highlight these because that's a big part of this journey towards Orwell, honestly, choosing the wrong type of love and distorted love is a big part of this possessive, jealous love. So this is just another example. I think where Lewis is showing how someone descends to that path and it's her father who's just constantly hurting her. And he's doing the same with Ritaval because she wasn't so bad in the earlier chapters, but in these three chapters, she becomes more and more of a brat. And uh, there's, a, there's a line in there where the fox, speaking about Psyche, says that she's basically virtue incarnate. And even somebody as good as that isn't good enough for Redival. We're told that she, she yawned and she quarreled and she mocked. And she's got some really, really nasty, catty lines in these chapters. Yeah, you could see her jealousy coming out. And so that's a big part of this whole entire book, Jealous Love. And you saw that with Redival, uh, jealous towards Psyche. Psyche's just pure genuine and self-sacrificial love just cares about the other and that frustrates red of all which we've talked about in mere christianity is pride ultimately and also oriel is still incredibly protective of psyche we're told about an incident where redival hit psyche and oriel says you know i sort of came to after beating her black and blue with my hands around her throat and we are now starting to see orwell's possessive love i mean that's that starts to show how she is putting all of her eggs in one basket. Psyche, all of her happiness and joy she's putting in Psyche. And also her similarity to her father, because it's rather similar to what happened on, at the birth of Psyche when the king kills a servant and appears to forget that he did that. Jeez, yeah, it's a good point. Just overcome by rage. Yes, which maybe alludes to how we've talked about before how the father became that way. You're almost getting a glimpse of how the father could become that way indirectly through Orwell. And so as we go through this chapter, we find out that Gloam is getting pretty gloomy. There have been two bad harvests and the king can't get another bride and he can't marry off his daughters. And then there's this incident between Redival, Psyche and a woman in the lane. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, there was. it's the first time we start to see Psyche potentially her beauty getting worshipped. I think I have it in my notes incorrectly here, but wasn't Psyche asked to kiss the baby in the belly? She was asked to kiss the pregnant mother so that her, her unborn child would be beautiful. Yes, I, I had in here asked to kiss the feet of the baby. Clearly, I wrote this quickly. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, the idea was that the baby would become beautiful. And this starts to concern Orwell because she has this fear that the gods might become jealous. And in this moment, we see the fox again with his rational side that we saw in the last episode, where he said, daughter, it doesn't matter astray. A straw. A straw. <laughs> Thank you. The divine nature is without jealousy. Those gods, the sort of gods who you are always thinking about, are all folly and lies of poets. We have discussed this a hundred times. Yeah, here we get to see that the fox doesn't seem to be a materialist. He believes in the divine, but it isn't the anthropomorphic gods of Ungit and Aphrodite. Also notice how we, we're seeing here an example of, we're really actually seeing play out as I go through this slowly. I didn't know this when I read this, but Orwell's how she becomes who she becomes later in the book, which will become important. And I won't say more than that, but we've, we're seeing it from the father's influence that's wounding her, right? Well, now we're also seeing it from the fox's influence on her analytical framework, this framework that she brings to the world. She starts pretty open to the idea that the gods need to be like worshipped or sacrificed to, or you should be afraid of them, or they have power. And 
he is chiseling away at that and honestly shifting her analytical framework to doubt a lot of that, which is going to be very important. I don't actually know the chapters, but in about 50 to 60 pages from now. <laughs> so probably two episodes from now, this will start to become very important. When we start talking about a palace and it, we're seeing it play out firsthand here with the Fox. And Redaval continues to go down in my estimation. She shows herself to be immodest and spiteful and also a blackmailer. She basically hints that she might tell the priest of Ungit that people are worshipping Psyche. And I think she gets, uh, she tells the fox to make sure that she gets a husband and she gets Orwell to give her a necklace that their mother had given her. Yeah, she's very manipulative. So anyway, in Gloam, things go from bad to worse. Karen's father, the guy that the king castrated, um, he gets together with some nobles and they rebel against the king. The king puts down the rebellion. Apparently it was excessively bloody. But there was one line in there that jumped out to me, and I wonder what you made of this. When the king is getting ready to go out and fight, Orwell writes, My father took to the field himself, and when I saw him ride out in his armor, I came nearer to loving him than I had been yet. Why do you think she says that? What is it about that scene that almost generates love for him? So two comments. First, I would say the bar is set quite low, <laughs> so I wouldn't read too terribly much into it. But I actually, that stuck out to me too. I think Lewis is trying to communicate a point. No matter how far you're gone in a journey of brokenness, woundedness that leads you to be distorted, let's just say it's a love in a distorted way, which he very much is living out of. There is still a part of you that's redeemable. And this was an action in a moment that was showing him putting his life in harm's way for something. Like he didn't have to ride out. And I doubt it drastically would have shifted the direction of the outcome of that battle. I mean, I can't imagine he is the be all end all of fighters. Obviously he's a good contributor, but so I, I really think that was a, an example, a small example of him somewhat being self-sacrificial, even if it was for selfish reasons there, there was the beginnings of it at least. I also wondered whether or not it was some romantic sensibility, the idea of knights on horseback because Orwell says later that she had never seen men fight, so her conception of the bloody battle that was about to happen wasn't at the forefront of her mind. Maybe it was more of that romantic, chivalrous idea of a knight in armor. That definitely could be some of that too. After the battle, we then hear that the fox falls sick, and this is when Orwell starts becoming useful to the king. This is another example of when I, I was talking about in the quote that I chose of Psyche, you start to see her becoming more her true self. I think this is an example of where we see Orwell the opposite happening. We're going to see throughout this journey her putting on this false self. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this action here, but she's being used by the king as counsel to essentially step in for the fox. And what we start to see here is she realizes she's competent, she's good in her advice, and now she's starting to place her sense of worth and identity in her what she can do. And I think this is an example where we're seeing this in a story play out where this is the beginning of oh, maybe I'm loved if I am wise, or maybe if I'm loved, if I'm competent. And I think we can all relate to that. So I just wanted to make that comment. But ultimately, yes, we see the fox sick, and we see Psyche working to heal the fox. And as the fox is healed by Psyche, the villagers learn about this. And so in this moment, we start to see them flocking to the palace. And this is where we start to see them thinking that Psyche can actually heal people. So this is why you called the title the healer as one of the three things. This is where they first get this sense of it. Two things I wanted to say about that incident with Psyche looking after the fox. 
One was the fact that you see that she she fights to get in to look after him. You, I, earlier I said, what do you love the most? Well, here, clearly, Saiki loves the fox greatly. Uh, but Orwell also comments that Saiki has their father's hot blood, the fact that she would kick and bite and do whatever she needed to do to get in. I am so glad you brought that up because you brilliantly brought up earlier the way that the father's in Orwell. The father's also in Psyche in an equal way, but we saw the negative expression of it through Orwell, and we just saw the positive expression. Because it is really important to know in life that who we are as creatures, and I think this is an example of this, it's we're not born bad, but things can either be used in a good way or a bad way. And in Psyche and Orwell constantly throughout the story, that's why I want to always highlight these things, provide examples of that. I think that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't think about that, but... That's a perfect example of Psyche expressing a passion, a fiery passion, like St. Louis de Montfort, uh, and expressing it in the positive way. Now, you mentioned that after the fox's recovery, these rumors go abroad that Psyche has the ability to heal people with a touch. And Orwell describes this really strangely, I thought. She said, now mark the subtlety of the God who is against us. The story of his recovery and Psyche's nursing got abroad. Batter alone was conduit pipe enough. And there were a score of other talkers. It became a story of how the beautiful princess could cure the fever by her touch, and soon that her touch was the only thing that could cure it. I don't quite understand why she blames the god of the mountain for the spreading of this rumor. When she points out who the very human, very mortal agents of of spreading this rumor were. Yeah, I actually... I don't know if there's a really great answer there other than this is an example of where she's operating with imperfect information. And we've been talking a lot about how a lot of the story is like guessing what the gods are like and how they think. And no one knows exactly what they're like. And you're, you have this analytical framework you're operating under. And I think this is just her getting it wrong. And there, she has a natural biases towards blaming the gods for everything, as we know from the beginning of this book. So, Yeah, it's like when you're angry with somebody and then something else bad happens, you're much more likely to blame the people that you dislike than those that you like. Yes, which again is a big part of this book is Psyche has a natural love for the gods and a very openness and longing. And Orwell has the opposite from the beginning. We see this right away. And I'm curious where it started from. I don't know if it's all because of the fox or if it's for other reasons, because Psyche was around the fox too. But Orwell just has a natural disposition to be against them. Well, why don't you talk about what happens at the gates? She touched a lot of people and then got sick. <laughs> You're making me remember a very specific scene, I feel like. she. I mean, she was very self-sacrificial and continued touching them. They didn't know yet whether she was healing them or not. She's just touching everyone. And I actually got this sense from a very rational perspective that, of course, as she's touching more and more people, she's acquiring the fever herself, uh, as you would imagine. And and possibly spreading it as well. It, 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 I was thinking <laughs> that, too. I'm like, well, of course she's spreading it. But again, that's me being the fox, actually. I caught myself. I'm like, I'm approaching this purely from a fox perspective. See, in that scene, it seemed like Psyche was a Christ-like figure. Oh, that's what you were getting at. It Well, it, it, it set up of her... Coming, coming from the darkness into this glaring light and the crowds parting and her walking solemnly through, touching them and blessing them as they're kneeling before her. And as a result of all of this, she gets, gets the fever. And I couldn't help but think of Matthew 8, where it's 
quoting and talking about Jesus and his healing. And it says he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Psyche does literally that. <laughs> As you're saying that, that's what I was thinking of. And I was also going a step two of thinking of the cross where he takes his sin on our shoulders. See, I'm just not syncing up with you today with this cold. I, I should have known that's where you're going with that. <laughs> My bad. Well, well, we'll actually get to the wood of the cross in a little, in a little bit. Um, but yeah, as a result of this, adulation for Psyche continues and Orwell is really worried. But the fox points out that it's only going to be dangerous when the priest of Ungit gets well. At the moment, he's sick also with the plague and he's the one that we've got to be really scared about. Which notice, that's his improper framework again. He's discounting, I think it's the fox. I think it's got to be, it's, it's half true, let's just say. I think the fox and everything is just half true with him. Because in reality, if Ungit's really a god and a powerful god, if the priest is sick, I think Ungit can still work. Yeah, it might be a problem. And at the end of the chapter, it ominously points out that Redival then suddenly becomes rather pious and starts going to the house of Ungit rather regularly. What did you make of that? Because it said that they assumed it was just for selfish reasons so she could find a husband. But the way they said it suggested that there was an actual deeper reason, but they didn't actually state it. Oh, I, I read this with Marie pretty much straight after you and I finished the last episode, since I could now read ahead. And we both predicted pretty much everything that happened in chapters four and five. We were absolutely convinced that she was going to uh, go and meddle and get her sister into trouble. And there's also the line where, where Redval says, oh, it's not me they worship, you know, I'm not the goddess. The men are as likely to look at you as, to, as at me now that they've seen Istra. So she is seeing Psyche as competition. She used to be regarded as beautiful, but now they've seen the really beautiful sister. She's nothing. I wonder if Redival is like the high priests who rattle a tattle, or the people that tattle on Jesus almost uh, to, the high, to the high courts and stuff. Look at this guy going around blaspheming. Well, also the the Pharisees had real issues with with Jesus as well, uh, but I'm going to talk about that in a later chapter. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so so let's get on to chapter four. Here's the summary I came up with: The people came to the palace demanding food, which is eventually given to them. While they are complaining, one man comments that Baron King makes barren land. King Trom has him killed. Upon hearing that her former wet nurse was sick, Psyche goes into the city to visit her. She is distraught when the people spit at her, throw stones, and call her the Accursed. The plague begins to lessen, and the palace is visited by the recently recovered priest of Ungit. Well, this had the part of it that I really liked of the example of some of the quote that I gave in the beginning of Psyche when she grew deeper. I thought this was a really beautiful example of that further journey for her. And we start to see more her growing up. And I particularly loved in this chapter when she was sick, how it says during her sickness, how she continued longing for the gray mountain, which is so important throughout this book, that longing. I thought that was a, a very, one of my favorite parts of this chapter. The thing that I find strange is quite how quickly the people turned on her. You know, they were worshipping her one day, and we don't have an exact chronology, but it's not more than a couple of weeks later, and suddenly they're calling her the Accursed. Again, if we're viewing Psyche as a Christ-like character, it kind of parallels with Jesus coming to Jerusalem and the people throwing down palm branches and saying, Hosanna in the highest, 
and then only shortly afterwards crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah, it's amazing how quick that turn can happen. And as I was, as I was reading about Psyche being sick, I was thinking about Isaiah 53, which again talks about the suffering of Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes, we are healed. Ooh, I like that. Psyche had taken on the fever, the disease, and this is how they respond? It is very interesting reading it from an outside perspective. But I like how we've continued to connect this to the gospel message. How often do you read the gospel with the exact same thought? Where it's like we have hindsight 2020, and we're thinking, really? This is how you responded? Because we are, again, this goes back to a huge scene we talked about with Emily Laporte, when you have the right framework to apply. Remember, when we're reading the Gospels, we're reading about Christ, we're applying the framework that has now been developed over 2,000 years to it. But imagine you're in that moment, in this person you're thinking is the Messiah, and then, but you don't know, and you don't have a lot to ground that on yet. They don't have the resurrection yet. They have none of that to base it in. And so, yeah, I would say that their belief is very flimsy. And of course here, she doesn't know a lot about the gods. This is unknown territory. And so the belief is flimsy and it's easily swayed. But it's all about having the right framework. I think it also shows what fear can do. And particularly if you have unfulfilled expectations, if you had put all of your hope in Psyche and what happens isn't quite what you would expect. In the same way that if you believed in Jesus and you were expecting the militaristic Messiah and it's not happening, you could very quickly turn on a dime and go from being his biggest fan to being the person that's handing him in for 30 pieces of silver. What about another example or way of looking at it would be how flimsy when you place your hope in the wrong thing, because it's not going to be very lasting. So here again, they're placing it in Psyche, who is still just a mortal person, and they are turning an earthly thing into a divine thing. And so that's, it's, but it's not divine. And so by doing that, it's like when we idolize certain loves that aren't the divine love, they're not going to be very strong. They're going to get, they're going to essentially disappoint us, which is what she did because she didn't heal them allegedly. And which makes sense. And then they were disappointed. And so therefore they ended up turning on it really quickly. Now she might be mortal, but she is definitely very good. The incident when she comes back after she's been spat on and had stones thrown at her, Orwell is furious, <laughs> just like our father. And Psyche is the one to ground her to call, call her back and calm her down. And she was the one that had just received the abuse. I'm, I'm genuinely curious your thoughts right now, because I believe you now have enough of this book, even though we're still early in it. We're seeing the descent of Psyche, but or, I mean, Orwell, but Psyche seems to just be on another level of goodness. Do you believe she was just born this way and she just got lucky? Because that is a question I've asked myself in this book, and I don't actually know if Lewis answers it very well. We see, it seems Orwell kind of starting in a somewhat negative, a worse off lot in life than Psyche, and then descends. But Psyche just seems to start high and keeps going higher. I think Grace builds on nature, and I think she had an awful lot of natural gifts. Remember the chapter we did in Mere Christianity? It was called uh, Morality and Psychoanalysis. And there, Lewis spoke about how we each have raw materials that God's grace works with and our raw materials are different. I think Psyche definitely had some very good raw materials as well as an environment that really supported her, the love of Oriole and the care of the fox. 
That's close to slow clap worthy, David. I think you've answered my question <laughs> because I've been looking at this from a perspective that you have to get to a certain point by the end, let's call it of your life, of longing for God, love for God, communion with God in order to spend eternity with him. In reality, what God is looking at is what you did with your raw material. So yes, we can actually state that Orwell started with a lower base, but she didn't have to get to the level of psyche. God would be looking at her, okay, she started with a worse off lot and she did really well with it. And then his grace will get her to the end at some point, whether it's on this side or after, um, as we kind of see in the great divorce. I like, there you go. That's the answer. Nice work, David. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And now we get to the bit that reminded me of the, the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate, because we have the visitation of the priest. He's been sick twice with the fever and he now comes to visit the king. The religious authority in Glome is now going to the secular authority. And we're told about how that there are two temple girls who come with the priest into the palace. And again, I'm not entirely sure the significance of it, but the fact that it talks about their faces being painted, uh, wooden masks, I can't help but think that Lewis is winking at us here. I, I was... Okay, that was an example of Andrew Lazo where he said, you read something and you're not sure what hit you. I spent a few minutes thinking about that and trying to ask myself, what do they represent? Is this a positive thing? Is it negative? Um, And honestly, I didn't come to any answers. Well, in that case, let's uh, go on to the final chapter of this week, which is chapter five, where we get to hear the conversation. You didn't have any answer? (laughs) Nope. I don't have I don't have an answer. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I I mean I I hate to say I almost had some morbid thoughts too. You think of some of these cultish like religions and things, and honestly, I'm, I I hate to say it. My mind went there. I'm like, oh, this is just creepy. <laughs> it is a little creepy. Yeah, I mean I I don't know if I should admit that, but that's what I was thinking when I read that. It's like, oof. Well, speaking of creepy, this is what happens in chapter five. The priest explains to the king that the previous night there was a meeting of the people in the temple. He explains that the land is impure and that the goddess Ungit requires the accursed to be sacrificed in a great offering to the brute. The fox attempts to use logic to disprove the existence of the brute, but this is dismissed. The priest explains that lots were drawn to determine the identity of the accursed. When the king suspects that he was identified, he is furious and threatens the life of the priest. He's relieved when he hears that a lot fell to his daughter Psyche. Orwell begs him to spare her sister's life, but to no avail. Yeah, this is this chapter has a big back and forth between the rational and the non-rational, using that word, and that's different than irrational. It's using one of the study guides, but the rational versus the non-rational, because we're we're seeing the fox battling on one side with the wisdom of the Greeks. And we're seeing the priest on the other side talking about, well, you know what? That doesn't produce corn and and famines, which we'll get into in this chapter. And it also doesn't quite cut it because the priest does put forward a logical argument. He enumerates all of the calamities which have befallen Gloam. Famine, pestilence, drought, there's soon to be war, there have been lions, there's no male heir on the throne. And he says, this has happened before. When bad things have happened, it's been because somebody has offended the gods. We sacrificed that person. Everything was fine. So we've got to go find that person this time. It's amazing how much my mind thinks like the fox, though. This whole time I was thinking when I was reading this chapter of 
Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about statistical distributions. And it's usually when you get to the very far end of an outlier event where then you make some drastic change because you think it, it, it's just so extreme that you're doing something wrong. So you make a change and then the natural mean reversion happens and it wasn't due to your change, but then you attribute it to your change. It's like, yeah, most years you won't have a drought that goes on that long, but once in every 50 years, it's actually statistically will happen that you'll have one that's like five years long. And so at the fifth year, you'll be like, wow, it's been five years. This is way unusual, even though it's just an outlier. And so then you'll sacrifice someone. You'll assume the sacrifice did something when in reality, it was just an extreme event and you were going to go back to your normal. That's how I was thinking this whole time. (laughs) I'm like, I'm the fox. (laughs) And I'm not really surprised by that, particularly because we know that we're talking about killing another human being. It's like, we want to make absolutely sure and not just jump to a conclusion. Yes. And just to be clear, we are not, and Lewis is not condoning killing human beings. Disclaimer. No, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, but uh, what did you make of the priest's explanation about this sacrifice that's going to happen? Because the fox criticizes it a lot and says it's confusing and contradictory. Yeah, because he, just for a little context for listeners, he, he talks about how this is going to be the accursed, but then later talks about how it has to be the perfect offering. And so it's a bit of a confusing thing to the fox. He's like, how can it be the accursed, but then also be the perfect offering at the same time? And we actually somewhat get the answer to that. I think that, I think the fox's logic at the surface seems correct, but then when you know Psyche's story and you realize she is the offering, you can see how she is both the accursed based on like the earthly standards, but yet she's also the perfect offering. It almost depends on whose perspective you're looking from, because I wouldn't say she's, she's the accursed by human election, almost, if you want to call it that. But yet by divine, she's actually quite perfect. And they talk about the execution, uh, that the accursed is tied to the holy tree and uh, consumed by the brute. But this is both a death and a marriage. Yes, it was a, a love, but a devouring actually talked about how if it's a female offering, it will be enjoying, call it the marital bed, call it with um, Ungit's son. And if it's a male, it'll be with Ungit herself. And it'll be like a lovemaking, but it'll be devouring love at the same time. I thought that was intriguing. I I wasn't sure what Lewis was going with that, but I guess the divine love is so all consuming when we enter into communion with God, it devours us to some degree, maybe. Well, looking at this with Christian goggles on, you see an awful lot of things that make you think of Christ. First of all, the victim is tied to the holy tree, immediately thinking of the wood of the cross. Um, we talk about Christ being the bridegroom. We talk about the church being his bride. Um, this is also seems like covenant making where there is shedding of blood and forming of familial relations. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it is amazing the parallels between these two, but I'm curious if you think when it talked about the devouring love, is that the devouring love that was in here? It's between psyche and Ungit, or in this case, the son of Ungit, because it's a woman psyche is. So does that mean, is, is, is it trying to represent the devouring love between the divine and us or devouring love between God and the Son on the sacrifice. I, th- I would I would say it's the the devouring love between Christ and the Church. If you if if you wanted to call it devouring love, um, 
but there almost that there is a, a divine exchange. Yeah, and I think of devouring. I, I agree. That's a strong word, and just used here. I think of when Jesus asks for all of us, and He wants every part of us. It's not. It's an all-consuming is almost the word that I would say. It takes over all of us. We have to give Him everything we have. It's not like here's twenty percent of me, Christ, and do with this, and then let me have my other eighty. It's like you get all of me, and you transform it all. And that naturally leads into the topic of theosis. You know, with the Eucharistic feast, the priest will mix uh, water and wine and say, by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ. Yes. It's by giving all of ourselves to God that we come back renewed. I'm writing a talk on that right now. I might steal that point. <laughs> I'm literally writing a talk on C.S. Lewis and theosis. Now, the fox and the priest, they actually have a bit of an argument as to whether or not Greek wisdom can really be used when it comes to the gods. The priest says, We are hearing much Greek wisdom this morning, king, said the priest, and I've heard it, most of it, before. I did not need a slave to teach it to me. It is very subtle, but it brings no rain and grows no corn. Sacrifice does both. It does not even give them boldness to die. And then he has a little jab at the fox. He says, Much less does it give them understanding of holy things. They demand to see things clearly, as if the gods were no more than letters written in a book. I, king, have dealt with the gods for three generations of men, and I know that they dazzle our eyes and flow in and out of one another like eddies on a river, and nothing that is said clearly can be said truly about them. Holy places are dark places. It is life and strength, not knowledge and words that we get in them. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. He does. I completely agree. And I think he's got a point. <laughs> because he's saying that the fox is treating divine things just like they were ordinary things, natural things, not supernatural. Yeah, I was thinking of the whole time. I'm, I'm appreciating more and more as we go through this slowly, Emily's analytical versus experiential. The priest is taking the experiential approach, essentially saying there's not necessarily rational explanation for everything. But my experience has showed me after thir- three decades, and then it doesn't even go longer. I mean, you said you've been a priest for almost 50-something years or 60-something, I think we learned. It's like through that time, I have learned this, and this has worked, and my experience has showed this. And I think we all can relate to that. It's like, I know you want to try to create a rational explanation for how when I prayed really deeply, this outcome happened. But I can just tell you, it was, it, it, God was guiding it and answered the prayers. But it's, it's, it reminded me a lot of that, is that as you were reading that. That's what was coming to my mind. When we are like, I experienced God answering this prayer in a deep way, and I know he did. I think it does speak to the fact that there is more than just analytical knowledge. There is experiential. And it might not be that it's not rational, but just simply that we can't explain it yet rationally. Yes, that's why I like how, and for listeners, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but uh, one of the study guides uses the word very intentionally, non-rational, instead of irrational. Those are very different. It's like we don't have an irrational explanation yet, and it doesn't mean it's irrational, but it's a, it's a different way of looking at it, I guess. So let's tidy off this chapter, because the priest explains that they cast lots for the accursed, and the king gets all scared uh, for his own skin when he thinks that he might be the person that the lots identified. And so he calls his guard, Bardia, uh, to go and kill the people who are going to try and take him away. And he, his response was great. He says, yeah, I'm not going to fight between gods and kings. 
the king just has a hissy fit and calls him a girl. (laughs) (laughs) And then the king goes to threaten the priest and the priest isn't afraid. Back to what I said at the beginning of the episode. In this episode, we find out about what do you love most. It's clear that the priest loves Ungit or trusts Ungit more than his own life. And he actually even threatens the king. You kill me. (laughs) It actually reminded me of Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Uh, The priest says, "If, if you kill me, I might come back to haunt you. And that causes a shift in Oriole's thinking. Because she said that the fox had taught her to think. Um, or at least speak as though the priest was just a schemer and uh, a politician who just put into the mouth of Ungit whatever would benefit him best. But she says in that moment, she saw effectively that he was a true believer. This was a good example of where if Orwal was being honest with herself, you see an example where the framework that the fox has been sharing with her is, was shattered here a bit. I mean, he gave her a, a set way of viewing the priest, and this clearly was contrary to it, and he was wrong. And then you have probably the saddest thing thus far, the king's relief when he realizes that he's not the accursed, but his daughter is, that he loves his own skin more than his own daughter. Yeah, and this brought a ton of shame, it, it said to Orwell. She was greatly impacted by this because it showed her that he thought literally of no one but himself and had not a shred of courage. Because, again, though, here's another example though, where if, if Orwell was really being, had some wisdom of the situation, she'd recognize at this point, if I were in her shoes, I don't, actually, I probably wouldn't in her shoes, but on the outside in, to put zero weight on what the king does. Because she knows that Psyche is incredibly beautiful and worthy and good and kind, and hence why she worships him. And yet, even that type of person can't move the king. Like, the king still was relieved to see that Psyche gets to go instead of him. Like, if I'm witnessing a person like that, I'm putting zero weight on what they think, zero weight on what they say, how they treat me. I don't care. They, I, they have no respect in my framework because clearly they just, they are so shallow and self-centered. But she doesn't do that. She still is hurt by him. Because he still has the ability to have her sister killed. I, I might not think uh, a whole lot of the judge who convicts me, but he still has the power to give me the electric chair. Yes, which is a different kind of fear. There's like the hit to your self-worth, and then there's a fear for your life. Um, hopefully there, I, it'd be like, all right, I don't really feel that I'm worthless because of what he says anymore. Maybe other people I feel worthless, but this guy clearly, no matter what I do, I won't be, no one would be good enough for him. You would think that's what you would be thinking, but clearly she's not. You you see how selfish the king ultimately is. Uh Uh-huh. So that's the end of chapter five. Do you have any other thoughts you wanted to share with us? No, I, I would, I mean, I guess I would just keep highlighting that this, we're seeing really well unpacked here the way of distorted love and how it's working in Orwell one way, how it's working in Psyche the other way. And I think this book is, as you said, a power example of the four loves, except he wrote that after, but it put into work more or less his view of loves. And so we're, we're only five chapters into this book and we're already seeing it play out and it is just going to get deeper and deeper. Now you said that you struggle a little bit as you read the first portion of this book. I got to say, maybe it's just because I've been going through it more slowly. I've absolutely been loving it. 
Yeah, actually, I read the first, well, the very first time I read this, well, f- in preparation for this season, I read it twice. The first time I did, I was in San Diego, actually. So that was when I was with you. And I was just sitting out on the beach. I was like, man, this just book is not getting me going one bit. I've never had a mind for poetry, mythology. These uh, It's really the characters' names. I would actually put it this way. The characters are so foreign. I kept hearing unget, sacrifice, all this extreme stuff. And my brain is like, this is just way out there. I can't relate to it. Now that I've read it so many times, this would be my fourth time now going through it slowly, everything clicks. Like I know the characters are not as extreme. They're not foreign. These names that it's just hard to follow names that are just so foreign to you and ideas. Would it help if we just renamed them all rather than Orwell? It's Olivia rather than uh, psyche. It's CC. <laughs> yeah. And if there weren't these like priests putting masks on face in these weird rituals that I just can't relate with, that just seems so out there and extreme. Probably. <laughs> but then again, you could, I say that, but I think this is what he's trying to do. Imagine you were on the outside in and you were studying like the Catholic faith and you didn't know any of it. We're weird. Yeah. I mean, we do lots of strange things. We have odd terms for things. Yeah. Actually go further to Eastern Orth- Eastern. <laughs> There's no alcohol. <laughs> it's tea. Eastern Orthodox faith. I mean, man, go to some of those processions. I mean, there's like incense going on and humming and awing, and it'd be like, yeah. So that's how, that's what I was. I was an outsider looking in. And now that I'm into the story, I'm enjoying it more. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, listeners, if you have any thoughts about this, you can always message us at pintsforjack.com. And again, as we stress, please go uh, check out the website, subscribe to the YouTube channel, rate us. Go to the Instagram, the Twitter page. All of them are at Pints with Jack. The YouTube channel is Pints with Jack. Everything is now. So please go check those out and uh, leave us some ratings and some reviews. And we didn't say this last episode, but I'm going to try and make sure we do it from here on in. Uh, tell you what chapters we're going to be talking about in the next episode. So if you want to catch up in time for next episode, please read chapters six and seven. And join us next week when we're going to be going further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers.